2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? 
Who, ki who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pat. Uh, those children that are signed up for Story Keepers, you all can head out now. Anyone who uh, would like to use the nursery can head out now as well. And while parents are getting their kids situated, let me pray for our passage today. Gracious God, it is true, as we see right now, that there are parts of your word that are difficult. Yet, Lord, this is your truth. It reminds us, God, that you are the God who works in and through the messes of human life for your glory and for our good. But Lord, we need your help by your spirit in this passage this morning. So help us open our hearts, open our minds, that we would see your truth here and how this shines upon your glory, how it points us to Christ. Lord, may we grow in him through this time. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It will not be a surprise to many of you when I say that we live in a time where public scandal is pretty normal. You can't, you can't even go to the checkout line at the grocery store without seeing the latest tidbits of gossip swirling around in the tabloids. When some new story of any sort of unethical or immoral behavior breaks our news channels, they run it through the ringer. They don't leave any stone unturned with our 24-hour news cycle. And two things stand out to me as I look at the, the ethical and moral purity of our day. And the first is this that through sheer saturation, we are at risk of becoming more and more desensitized to these sorts of things, unethical and immoral behavior. And just, just consider as an example the, the sensuality. Um, some have coined the term these days the pornification of culture, 
Sex is unashamedly everywhere. And we ingest a lot of this content simply through osmosis because it's so pervasive in the culture. It's hard to escape these things. But often we, we take it in willingly too in the things that we watch and read and listen to. David Paulson has a line where he says, sex is like fire. When it blazes in the fireplace, a good warm fire brightens a room. It enhances joy and companionship. But when fire ignites in the wrong place, the house burns down. So the question we might ask is, well, where is the fireplace? Where does, where does sex actually belong? And God, God's told us that, that God's design for sex, he's designed it good in the context of marriage and in that marriage bed between a husband and a wife, where it can burn hot and where it can burn bright. But often the way that we see sex portrayed, the way that we hear about it and we hear it talked about is very different. We hear sex talked about, uh, it's free to be ignited anywhere, wherever it pleases. And that fire can cause a lot of damage. Now, sex is just one example of the many ways that we can risk being desensitized to these things. With more time, we could talk about violence. We could talk about manipulation, the other things that we see. The second observation is a bit ironic in light of the first, but it's this, that those who hold to some sort of religious ethic, like Christians do, are watched with greater scrutiny if people know that you're a Christian, you will be watched to gauge your own authenticity if your words match your life. We, in a sense, live under a microscope, and that's not a bad thing, but it forces us to ask the questions, how is my walk with Christ? Are my words and my life preaching the same message? In Scripture, God shows us his way, the way that we ought to walk. But what if we don't listen to God? And what if we go our way, not God's way? Our passage this morning shows us the snowballing effect that sin has. Seemingly insignificant things can compound into something disastrous when left unchecked. And it's a reminder to us that our first concern is not so much what others might think of us, but how we live before the eyes of a holy God, and that we are first accountable to him. And that's going to be the big idea as we work through this text this morning, that we live before the eyes of a holy God. And we're going to use David's encounters with the various characters that we find in this chapter as signposts to see how this idea plays itself out in the text. But let me begin by answering a different question. What, what happened to chapter 10? Yeah. yeah. So you're all, you're all very astute observers, and you'll notice, so Andrew preached on 2 Samuel 9 last week. I'm preaching on chapter 11 this week. I assure you it was neither an oversight, nor do we think that chapter 10 is unimportant. If you haven't read it, I, I suggest that you do, but I'm going to do my best to kind of fill in the gaps here briefly. So chapter 10, as I see it, acts like this bridge between 9 and 11. The chapter does really two important things. First, it expands on a theme that's been developed in chapter 9, this theme of David's kindness, or in chapter 10, it's translated loyalty, but it's, that, it's the same Hebrew word used both places. It's this theme of hesed, that word that wraps up all of the positive attributes of God, his love 
and mercy and grace and kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, his covenant faithfulness. It's that, it's that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another person, regardless of how it might affect them. This is, it's that theme of hesed that's developed in, in 9 and 10, and it creates this, well, it creates a not-so-subtle irony um, when we look at chapter 11. The second thing that chapter 10 does is that it provides the historical context of what we see in 11 and 12. See, in 10 we read that King Naash of the Ammonites has died, and hearing about his death, David attempts to show his loyalty, again, that's that word hesed, to the Ammonites by sending this delegation to his son, Naash's son, with, with his condolences. And if we, want to put this, if we want to put this nicely, we would just say that David's act of kindness was really misinterpreted as him trying to take advantage, perhaps, of a, a vulnerable situation uh, in, that the Ammonites were, found themselves in. But, but more bluntly, Nahum takes David's representatives, he shaves them so that they're each sporting only half a beard. This is going to be, I think, the new thing that guys are doing for No Shave November. When they can't really decide, they'll just shave half the face and go with that. But he shaves half their beards off. He cuts their clothes up the fronts and up the backs, so he exposes them to the world, and he sends them packing in complete humiliation. And David hears this, and the gloves come off. And this conflict with the Ammonites ensues that serves as the backdrop for our chapter here in chapter 11. So as we start, as Pat read for us, the chapter starts with a time stamp. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And David remained in Jerusalem. It seems likely that a year or so has probably passed since this last altercation in chapter 10. You know, the generals, the soldiers, they're limbering up, getting ready for a new warring season. Israel had a pretty good season last year. They expect to have a good season this year. They're, they're something like the Yankees of, of Middle Eastern war at this point. I guess the Yankees aren't really good anymore, so that needs to change. But anyway, their first battle, you guessed it, is against the, the Ammonites. Now, David... David's probably in his 50s at this point. His playing days are, are pretty well over, so he's going to kind of manage everything back at the palace in Jerusalem. David, being a, a military man, he probably lived a fairly disciplined life. So it's curious to think now that he's shifted roles from kind of the active fighting general warrior type to this ruler in this later part of life, if he has not relaxed some of those disciplines, perhaps let his guard down a little bit too much. Pastors and commentators will, will talk about this because this, this chapter is a really sudden upheaval in David's life. It's almost disorienting, if you, even if you know it's coming, because we get halfway through 2 Samuel, and all of a sudden, David is tied up in this, in this scandal when before everything seemed to be going pretty well. For whatever reason, David has, I think, let his guard down. Forgetting that he lives before the eyes of a holy God, he has made himself vulnerable to, to temptation. And the passage makes clear that the snowballing effect of temptation 
uh, has its consequences. We'll see that soon enough. So we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 5 here, but what I want to read for you is actually a, a pastor's retelling of these verses because I think it provides some honest transparency as, what, as to what's happening here. So this comes from uh, Kent Hughes, and he writes, It had been a warm day, and evening was falling. The king strode out on the rooftop for some cool air and a look at his city at dusk. And as he gazed, his eyes caught the form of an unusually beautiful woman who was bathing without any modesty. As to how beautiful she was, she was very beautiful, young and in the prime of her life. The evening shadows made her even more enticing. The king looked at her, and he continued to look at her. After the first glance, David should have probably turned the other way and retired to his chambers, but he didn't. The look became a sinful stare, and then a heart-pounding, sweaty leer. In that moment, David, who had been a man after God's own heart, had became a dirty, leering old man. A lustful fixation came over him that would not be denied. Earlier, we noted how seemingly insignificant things can compound into something disastrous when left unchecked. Where, David's, where did David's snowball of sin begin? With that unchecked glance, an image that he would not let himself forget, a thought that he allowed to grow into a what if, a fantasy that became an infatuation. The quote from J.C. Ryle in your bulletin this morning really says it all. He says, sin rarely seems like sin at first beginnings. Let us then watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. God tells us in 1 Peter 5 that we are to be watchful and vigilant because our enemy, the devil, stalks around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and we are to resist him. This is not exactly easy, so practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we resist the stalking pursuit of Satan and his attempts to tempt us? We practice discipline. We, we train our hearts and our minds to pursue what is good and what is godly. And this can start very simply by just taking an inventory of the things that we allow to shape us, the things that we watch and read and listen to, the activities that we participate in the people that we most regularly surround ourselves with. All of these are formative things, and they deserve our time and attention as we consider how they shape us. And here are a couple questions that I think are helpful as we take this inventory. Am I, am I using the grace of Jesus to justify something sinful? Do my recreations express or advance my holiness? Do the things that I do lead me to think about what is honorable? Am I compromising some aspect of my faith anywhere? Am I doing anything that brings me shame or guilt? And now the goal in asking these questions is not to develop some kind of prescriptive list of do's and don'ts, but, but simply to emphasize that disciplining our hearts and our minds and being watchful over our lives are active parts of our walk with Christ that we cannot pursue holiness passively as if it just happens overnight after enough time. But we can 
be passively influenced away from holiness if we do not watch ourselves. The, the second thing that I will mention just briefly is this, that we can't feel self-conscious about building hedges in our lives to protect us from temptation. Early in high school, I was exposed to pornography, and that has shaped me in poor ways. I've battled it up, up to this day. I don't have internet on my phone. I have blocks on my computer. I try to be careful about what I watch, especially what I watch alone. Without these hedges in place, it would be far too easy for me to succumb to temptation. I am not that strong. Even with them, it's not foolproof. Carla is my accountability. There is no one that I trust more or can be more vulnerable with than her. She has access to everything in my life, my devices. She has freedom to ask me whenever, wherever, how I'm doing what I'm struggling with. Now, I know in this room, some of you may have the same struggle that I have. Some of your struggles are different. Your tempta our temptations are not the same. But to use a picture from Proverbs 4, if you know yourself and what those temptations are, those things that cause you to begin to peek down or consider stepping on that path of wickedness, don't be afraid to set up roadblocks. Don't be afraid to set up roadblocks so that you can keep following God's path of wisdom and holiness. And have somebody hold you accountable, someone you trust, who you can be vulnerable with and who will be vulnerable with you as you walk with Christ together. Oh, that David would have a person like this in his life at this point in time. Someone to reel him back in. If you're familiar with, um, familiar with VeggieTales, this rendition of this episode in David's life, King George and the Ducky, you might remember that King George had such a person in his life. Well, he wasn't a, he wasn't a person as much as he was a tomato. But, but you get the same idea. His name was Lewis. King George had a rubber ducky all of his own, and one day while walking out on his balcony and looking across, he spots another rubber ducky in a bathtub, and after seeing this duck, he could think of nothing else. And Lewis tries to reason with the king, reminding him he already had a wonderful duck. The question, he just, he just didn't see why King George needed another at which time King George breaks out into a song exclaiming, I must have it, I must get it, you must go and get it for me. If you want me to be happy, then you'll show me you adore me. Don't rest another minute till it's sitting here before me. If you want to do your best, then I suggest that you go and bring me back that duck. <laughs> now, for a children's interpretation, that strikes at the heart of David's feelings in this moment. But we know that in David's case, it wasn't a duck. Right, It was a woman, and not just a woman, it was a man's wife, the wife of a soldier in David's army, Uriah the Hittite. And David fixated on her, and desiring her, he took her as if she was his own. The verbs in these verses, they tell the story. Walter Brueggemann points this out in his commentary. He says, the action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. 
the royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There's no adornment to the action. And then the woman gets some verbs. She returned, she conceived. The action is so stark. There is nothing but action, no conversation. There is no hint of caring, of affection, of love. There is only lust. David did not call her by her name, does not even speak to her. And at the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. The verb that finally counts is conceived. But the telling verb is he took her. So much of this encounter speaks to how sex is talked about and portrayed today. A spontaneous, impersonal, emotionless commodity where men and women are reduced to things, prizes to be won. There's, they're no longer people. They're just things. We need to ask ourselves, where is that hesed that David was about in chapters 9 and 10? How is he showing the loving kindness of God to Bathsheba here? Well, David doesn't have much time to worry about that question. He just found out that he has gotten another man's wife pregnant. And so he is now far too busy trying to cover up his mess. Look with me in verses 6 through 9. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So he said, at this point in the story, David's lone objective is covering his tracks. So we can imagine the conversation maybe going something like this. David dials up Joab, his general, and he's probably said, Hey, Joab, yep, it's, it's King David. Do you, you have a second? The fighting's not too, the fighting's okay? Okay, you can talk. Yeah, I want to talk to you about Uriah. Yeah, Uriah the Hittite. Yeah, I've been thinking about him. I think it'd be good for him to come back home and get a little R&R, you know, just catch his breath from from the fighting. Obviously, that's not how it went. But I say that a bit sarcastically because Job is probably scratching his, at David's request. We're in the middle of a war. You want me to send this guy back home? But timing is everything here for David. If he's going to get away with this, timing is everything. This is why we see in verses 6 through 13, David's insistence on Uriah going back down to his house. Go home, get a shower, eat a good meal, get some rest, spend some time with the missus. But Uriah will not go. Instead, he sleeps with the servants. David puts a bit more pressure on. Why are you not going down to your house? Don't you want to spend some time with your wife? After David's second attempt to get Uriah to go home, we get an explanation from Uriah as to why he refuses. And Uriah's explanation tells us so much about where the minds of these two men are at. 
Uriah says in verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will, do, I will not do this thing. This is a remark that should have, should have brought David to his senses. Uriah the Hittite, not the Israelite, the, the Uriah the Hittite essentially tells David, my king, the ark of God is out there with the men of Israel and Judah living in tents, fighting this war. Joab and his servants are camping out in the middle of the field. How am I supposed to, in my good conscience, go home and rest at a time like this? In your eyes, mind, this is not a time for leisure. While he and the armies of Israel are out fighting. But David, perhaps because of too much leisure, is more worried about sweeping this scandal with Bathsheba under the rug. There's a big discrepancy in priorities here. Where is the hesed that David was all about? How is he showing God's loving kindness here to Uriah? Since Uriah refuses to play ball with David, he has now become a massive thorn in his side. And David's going to take a stronger course of action. If you've, had, if you've seen any good mobster movie or any mob movie, for that matter, they're in every one, I think. You know that there's more than one way to take care of your problems. So in David's failed attempt to get Uriah to go and to sleep with Bathsheba, so that he would believe that this child that she was carrying was, was his, David sends this soldier back to the front lines with a letter in hand for his general Joab. And little did Uriah know that what he was carrying in his hand was his death warrant. Verses 14 and 15 give us the details where he says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. I'm confident David waited anxiously for words from the front day and night waiting for a messenger to to come over the horizon and appear to let him know that he was in the clear. And when word finally does arrive, the news isn't good. Joab and his men initiated the attack, but Israel's troops, they quickly found themselves in a losing position. They were overcome. There were several casualties, but the only thing that David heard was, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. If you play chess, you know that often you can lose a game simply because the other player had better strategy and tactics than you did. But other times you lose a game, even if you're the better player, by moving the wrong piece to the wrong square at the wrong time. Even the best players have a hard time recovering from serious blunders. David was a smart tactician. He was savvy in the ways of war. Yet his command given to cover up his own butt was a serious blunder that led his men straight into a firing squad. Even though Israel had lost, David, in a sense, well, he probably felt like he had won. He was in the clear. 
In his note back to Joab, David tells us everything that we need to know about the condition of his own heart through all of this. In verse 25, we read that David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. I, want to, I just want to point something out really quickly here that, that doesn't always come out so clearly in our English translations. David's initial remark that he tells the messenger to relay back to Joab can be translated this way. Do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. What did David have in mind? What was it that he didn't consider so evil that Joab shouldn't worry? The lost battle? The fact that they lost soldiers along the way? Or does David have in mind the entire course of events, his interaction with Uriah, the sending him with the death warrant, the ripple effect of sin that led us to this moment? Based on the rest of David's response, I would argue that the only evil that David had in his mind was the fact that they lost the fight. He tells the messenger, go encourage Joab. Buck up, Joab. This is war after all. Catch your breath. Have another go. Where was that hesed that David was talking about? How is David showing God's loving kindness to Joab and his soldiers here? At this point, David seems completely blind to this snowballing nature of his sin. Many will point out that during this episode in David's life, he breaks every one of the Ten Commandments. By coveting his neighbor's wife, he broke the Tenth Commandment that led to David to commit adultery to break the Seventh. Then to steal his neighbor's wife, broke the Eighth. He committed murder, he broke the Sixth Commandment. He broke the Ninth Commandment by bearing false witness against his brother. This all brought dishonor to his parents, thus he broke the Fifth, and in this way he broke all of the Ten Commandments relating to how one is to love their neighbor as their self. And in breaking all these, he dishonored God as well, in effect, breaking the first four. Now consider what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any of the other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, much like Jesus has said, that the Ten Commandments are the way for God's people to love one another. When we love, we fulfill the commandments, and when we obey the commandments, we are fulfilling the law of love. But who did David love in this passage? He loved himself. And he seemed blind to the fact that in the process of all of this, he has turned his back on God, but he also caused a tremendous amount of hurt to a lot of people. The striking thing is what we actually read in the final verse, a verse that in Hebrew points us to how far David had fallen away from the Lord. It reads, but the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
We hear the words of David come back to bite him here. Do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. Clearly, God had a different opinion. We live our lives before a holy God. Throughout this chapter, David has conducted his affairs as if God was absent, like he wasn't watching. And in reality, he was there the whole time. Nothing we do goes unnoticed. And we get to the end of a chapter like this, and we can feel a couple of ways. We can feel like we've been punched in the gut. David was supposed to be one of the best of us. God's king, a man after his own heart. Or we think, I would never find myself in that situation. Let's not forget that David was flesh and blood just like we are flesh and blood. We are not above being tempted. I caution anyone who thinks that they are. We must guard our life knowing how frail we are. We cannot put our hopes in men like David the same way we cannot put our hopes in ourselves. David is but a shadow. He's a shadow of the true hope that we have, the hope that God gives every sinner in his son, Jesus Christ, the greater David, our impeccable Savior. In Christ, there is grace and forgiveness for David and for every man and woman who are like David. In Christ, we have a Redeemer who knows what it is like to face the sufferings of temptation and yet for our sake was never, ever swayed by them. He who knew no sin can empathize with us in our weakness. In Christ, sin powers over us are broken through his death and resurrection. And by faith, we are given power by the Spirit to walk in newness of life, armed to fight against the schemes of Satan and to live as God's holy priesthood. Christ, by his Spirit, equips us for this. So church, know that there is hope. There's hope for each of us in Christ, the righteous. His grace covers us and equips us to love God and to love our neighbor and to live holy lives in his sight. Truly be encouraged by this. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for passages like this that remind us of the state of our hearts and how quickly we can fall away, wrapped up in our own wants and desires. Lord, draw us near to you that we would delight in your will and walk in your ways all the days of our life. And may we look to Christ, Christ who is our impeccable Savior, the one who has done everything for us that we would have life in him, communion with our God, and that we can walk in holiness. Help us as we pursue these things, those things which are good and godly and honorable. And Lord, give us strength in our weakness. And may we know that Christ 
is never far from us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.